Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. The word secular has a history and a good deal of baggage to boot. From describing changes in the decline of religion in modern societies, the rise of atheism or something akin to increasing numbers of agnostics in contemporary Western societies. From enchantment to disenchantment to reenchantment, from religious to secular to post-secular. To speak of the secular is to be confronted with an immensely complex array of events. People, religions and subjectivity, or as many people are wont to say these days, subjectivities that is and are shaped and forced into modes of seeing, believing and experiencing life. When Sarah Shaw asks, is secular Buddhism becoming a religion? She is in many ways breaking out of the simplistic dichotomy that marks the secular as opposite and in isolation to the religious and religions. Clearly, the title Secular plus Buddhism implies an already present dichotomy, a selective reading of that which is religious or non-religious, and rational or non-rational. Secularizing Buddhism as a text and as a book, upon which I based the previous conversation in this series with Richard K. Payne, its editor and contributor employs mostly academics to explore the tension between these two conceptual spaces, the secular and the religious. And in so doing, many return to Stephen Batchelor as a sort of reference point for locating their critique. This can make it seem at times as if Stephen becomes a kind of caricature perhaps not so different to the caricatures that many atheists or promoters of secularism conjure up to define and criticise religion and the religious. Either way, we all have to start somewhere, and that's usually with the most obvious features of a phenomenon. Much of the book, either way, provides interesting food for thought, and an interesting basis for further analysis, but also contemplation for the savvy practitioner. That's how I took it anyway. So I guess I'm saying I'm savvy. Woohoo. Today's episode is actually with the man in question. And Stephen Batchelor may well be the most famous secular Buddhist alive today. Hence the target on his back. Now, there's no target practice taking place in today's conversation. My objective with these conversations stroke interviews is always to have a sympathetic conversation that starts off with two human beings. Yes, I know, that sounds a bit trite to some of you, but how else are you going to say it? How else are you going to start? How else are you going to differentiate between Matthew interviewer, interviewing interviewee, subject, stroke Stephen Batchelor? If I can only see Stephen Batchelor as a caricature 
of himself, then really the conversation is unlikely to be very satisfying to any of us, including you lot listening. Anyway, Stephen's story is well known. He is one of a tradition of Western Buddhist writers who base much of their sharing and their thought around their own experience. And in that sense, it resonates with one of the words that gets used throughout the conversation today. It's phenomenological. Now, that's a word, isn't it? Phenomenological. Anyway, he is a British writer and teaches and does workshops and does public talks, exploring his ongoing relationship with Buddhism. And he does these all over the world. He actually started out with Tibetan Buddhism and then Zen and even became a monk in both. Since those experiences, he's been primarily interested in a return to early Buddhism. And in one way, that's the critique that's most interesting. Not necessarily of a man's wish to look backwards and locate a sense of teaching or practice or discourse that resonates with him, but rather what it means for a Westerner in 2021 to make that their project. Many of the critics are using critique from religious studies, philosophy, psychology and social studies, and therefore their themes present an interesting attrito, that's how you say it in Italian, but a kind of friction between ways of looking and interpreting and identifying. And then the individual, yes, that individual who gets, well, suffocated by much of our current thought. The individual, though, persists, and here we are, and each has her or his desires, curiosity, fears, and story. One story that's part of Stephen's story is his toying with agnosticism. And some of you who are well-read within his work may remember that one of his first texts had that in the title. He also toyed with atheism and other potential titles, but secular Buddhism was the one that stuck. And at each stage of Stephen's journey, there has been a book chronicling his process, his thinking, and his intellectual companions and ongoing questioning. And part of my curiosity regards those companions too. And you will hear me questioning him about them. There are many, too many, and so we only discuss a few. But I found that a rather interesting part of our conversation. Now, before we get into it, just a reminder that this series begins with a conversation with Mr. Richard K. Payne on the aforementioned book, Secularizing Buddhism. And after this interview with Stephen, there's an interview with Winton Higgins, an Australian author and teacher of secular Buddhism himself. And he actually wrote a companion practice text to the book I mentioned of Stephen's called After Buddhism. Finally, preparing for this conversation was hard work. I picked up on quite a lot of the critique of secular Buddhism that takes place in Richard Kane's book. The author's contributions vary in quality and I shan't name names so as not to get into trouble, but I would have liked to have drawn on a lot more of it, but I did my best and I wanted to do so in a constructive manner, because the line between critique and criticism is not always clear, even amongst the more academic-leaning folks. And my interest is not in attacking anybody, but having a decent conversation about the significance of that critique. I also wanted to know what Stephen was up to in this period of his life. I wanted to talk to him about his own day-to-day -day practice, and I wanted to discuss more of the sorts of sources from outside Buddhism that he is currently engaging with. Now that's all too much to do in a single interview of about an hour, 
But in the end, I think I managed to do just a little bit of each. And I think I did so in a way that might be useful to you and worthwhile for all of us in thinking more about these topics. That's either presumptuous or helpful. Either way, have a listen. Final note, this will be followed up by a think piece on doubt. Core theme in Stephen Batchelor's own interests. Today we're speaking with Stephen Batchelor as part of our series on secular Buddhism. One thing I'd like to start off by saying, and this is partly due to some recent conversations I've had, is that a lot of academics who are bringing some of the critique of secular Buddhism seem to expect far too much from Mr. Batchelor. And I would say in using some of the discourse that they present, that the image of Stephen Batchelor they conjure up appears to be, well, a bit of a caricature. Now, I don't know, Stephen, uh, what you think about such an idea. One thing they consistently push for is that you are the figurehead or the representative of secular Buddhism. They've decided that is your very much your role, and the rest of secular Buddhism is following your lead. So whether you want this role or not, or you identify as some kind of figurehead, how would you say that you are currently managing your role as certainly a very important symbolic figure within the realm of secular Buddhism? Um, <laughs> I, I realize that uh, that is a role that uh, I seem to have been given. It's certainly not a role that I've chosen. If you look back in the history of my writing, I've been struggling to find a way of labeling the kind of Buddhism slash Dharma that somehow speaks to me, which I can, as it were, uh, you know, stand by. And when I published Buddhism Without Beliefs in 1997, I opted actually for what I called an agnostic Buddhism. Uh, that never really took off. Nobody seemed to be terribly taken by that idea. I published a book in 2015, I think it was, called Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. No, that was 2010. And then I was exploring the potential of using the idea of atheism. Um, but again, although that was at the time uh, a term that was much in the air with the new atheists, uh, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and so on, um, the idea of a Buddhist atheism likewise never really got off the ground. And I guess it probably was some time around then uh, that I started exploring the idea of, of, of a secular Buddhism or a secular Dharma. And in fact, I think it was in 2007 that I actually went and bought the domain names uh, for those two things. Uh, so that means my interest goes back that far. And also, the fact that I bought a domain, domain name suggested I felt this perhaps was an idea that might uh, fly. And I think in some respects it has. Um, but it's debatable whether I was the first person to have coined this term. Uh, possibly that was Tim Meis uh, Ted Meissner of the Secular Buddhist Association in America. I think we might have come up with it around the same time. Uh, I don't really know. Um, but what has been strange for me is that although I am associated with this idea, um, uh, I, I feel it's somehow... Uh, grafted itself onto me rather than has been the consequence of anything that I have explicitly sought to achieve. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think that's a healthy thing. It means that there are people out there who 
maybe read my books or read a particular range of things on Buddhism, have certain common questions about what it means to practice the Dharma today, are perhaps increasingly disinclined to think of Buddhism purely in religious or you know orthodox terms. And for some reason or another, uh, the notion of secular Buddhism uh, is, has taken off. And I, I'm very happy about that because I do think that this is an approach that allows us to sort of, you know, respectfully put to one side some of the more metaphysical uh, or overtly religious beliefs that are common to many Buddhist schools and to afford a space in which we can return to what I feel are some of the core principles and values and practices that were taught by Gautama uh, and at the same time um, seek to consider these ideas and values and practices as ways in which we can respond to the kind of world we live in in the 21st century. Um, and that, I feel, is probably, broadly speaking, a project that many um, uh, Buddhists or people sympathetic to Buddhism might uh, be drawn to. And the growing interest in secular Buddhism seems to suggest that might be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Obviously, if we're going to have a new thing that emerges called secular Buddhism, it takes on, to some degree, a certain life of its own, right? It becomes an entity out there in the world that people begin to look at and identify, and to some degree identify in relation or in opposite, uh, opposition to something that it's not. Some of the critique that comes at you is obviously from traditional Buddhists who claim that you're doing something that you shouldn't. There are also academics who have constructed some critique of your work, some of it more constructive than others, and some of it more interesting than others. And I feel like sometimes that they really are producing a caricature of Stephen Batchelor, who's kind of frozen in time. Now, I've read quite a few of your books over the years, and I'm certainly seeing themes that are woven through those books, but I see also that your own relationship to Buddhism, to the secular process, and to your own thinking and practice life have also developed over time and have changed and, well, matured, if you don't mind me saying so. And in a conversation I had with Winton Higgins about a month back, uh, I found that that was a process that he was involved in too. So in terms of criticism, how do you tend to relate to critique you get from the academic world? which obviously is less personal and less rooted in things like orthodoxy. Do you find yourself engaging with it in constructive ways too? And have you learned anything from engaging with it as well? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I, I, I think it's a little disingenuous to think that the academic community are not embedded in some orthodoxy of their own. Mm. And um, I feel there is a stance there that uh, reflects a certain uh, perspective on Buddhism that is driven by the, you know, the whole academic project of mm -hmm. achieving some kind of quasi-scientific objectivity, looking at things and texts with a with a clearer, brighter historical critical awareness, and so forth and so on. Um, and that is a stance that's also embedded in um, in an institution called the academy that has its own power structures. You see, I think my critics. Um, uh, fall into two camps, as you correctly pointed out. I have, on the one hand, the traditional Buddhists, and I don't find it at all surprising that uh, a lot of what I say they find uh, rather either just plain wrong or else somehow unsettling or else somehow misguided or deluded or whatever. Um, 
And that, I think, is entirely uh, understandable. Uh, the academic critique is, is one that I think you have to see also in terms of my, old, my own absence of having a role in the academy. I've never been to university. I don't have a degree. Um, I don't have any standing within the world of the Western Academy. And as a consequence, I'm never invited to uh, conferences or extremely rarely. Um, I'm not asked to contribute or participate in collected essays on particular themes, even though it might concern my own work. Uh, I'm effectively uh, left out of the discourse. So if we look at it from that rather more distanced perspectives, I find myself inhabiting uh, a kind of somewhat lonely uh, middle ground between the religious orthodoxies of Buddhism uh, on one side, that won't, who don't want to have anything to do with me at all, in fact, will actively discourage many of their followers from uh, exploring my work. And on the other hand, I'm also ignored and somehow considered uh, dubious by the academic community uh, who, for their own reasons, uh, do not uh, respect what I do because I don't uh, have a PhD or any other academic qualifications that, uh, as it were, provide me entry into their closed club. So it's two closed systems that both claim uh, a great deal of authority uh, on behalf of either religious Buddhism or the academic community, and I find myself somehow uh, stranded between the two. Mm, mm. Now, have I learned anything from that? Yeah, I've learned the fact that um, the uh, the work I'm doing um, is one that, from my point of view, is one that stems very, very organically from my own training in particularly Tibetan and Zen Buddhism. Um, I feel that I'm actually pursuing the kind of inquiries that I was encouraged to pursue when I was training uh, under Geshe Rabton, uh, Gelugpa Lama, uh, with whom I studied for many years, who emphasized continuously that one should not take any Buddhist teaching simply at face value, but one should subject it, subject it to critical analysis. Um, like the Buddha famously suggested that one should test the Dharma as thoroughly and as rigorously as a goldsmith would, would test a, a piece of metal to see if it were gold or not. Um, and I feel that all of my work uh, from the time I started training as a monastic until my current moment now has a uh, has an a continuum. It's an ongoing uh, oeuvre or work, and I don't really think my work in that sense can be adequately uh, captured by any one of my books. I think of my books now really as a kind of a a body of work, and that is the basis on which I should be judged. And also, I don't see my work as a finished work. I see it as a work in progress, as you also suggested. And this is a, a project that I can imagine will go on as long as I'm able to think and write coherently and, um, and be engaged with these topics. Um, so frankly, um, I find any attention I get is um, an affirmation of what I'm doing, whether it's negative attention or positive attention. I try not to be uh, uh, pushed or pulled uh, by either, but to continue uh, my commitment to my own 
sensibility, my own vision, my own practice, and primarily to really seek to find another idiom, another voice in which the Dharma can uh, be communicated and conveyed, not just to Buddhists uh, or to academics, but really my public is neither of those. My public are people like you, like other, like people who live in the world, people who struggle with these questions who may not have any interest in Buddhism per se. Uh, I think what the, the Dharma is seeking to communicate is something that transcends any particular uh, credo, any particular belief system that is found in the traditional Buddhist uh, world and I think any kind of kind of reductive quasi-scientific understanding of Buddhism that is sought in the Western Academy. Okay, that's an interesting point you finish on there, which we might come back to. In listening to you, uh, I'm reminded of the fact, though, that if we leave academics aside for a moment, um, there are two clear strands running through your work, especially in the more recent work of yours that I've read after Buddhism. And there's a kind of interesting creativity or, or perhaps tension, and you'll say which uh, you experience more, between this attention paid to the Pali Canon and to earlier expressions of Buddhism, but also your engagement with figures outside of the world of Buddhism, such as Janivatimo, but also um, I've heard you mention that you find the work of Martin Heidegger, also of inspirational usage, and even Richard Rorty. There also seems to be attention to figures within the world of Christianity, and obviously there's a link there with Janivatimo, when I think of the academic world, I think of two forms. I think of those working away, you know, as part of the system, as you were defining it, as an almost enclosed system that functions for its own purpose. But I also think of it as being a home for people who, are, who have the time, who have the resources and the background to engage in more interesting kinds of exploration, especially in the worlds of philosophy and on a good day, you know, history and sociology and the rest. And when I think of Gianni Vatimo, I don't think necessarily of religion or Christianity, but more of his work in politics and philosophy. And the same would go for uh, Heidegger, although there's obviously a network of influences and uh, relationships going on there. So how do you manage that relationship within yourself? Obviously, your work is deeply personal in one way, even as it's a, a sense of seeking to communicate your journey and your process and your understanding to people who are interested in this kind of way of practicing. But as a person, I'm interested in how you manage that relationship between early Buddhism and what appeals to you about it and what you find meaningful and your choices of the kind of more modern living or, or, or recent figures within the intellectual culture of the West that inspire you too. I see this relationship, uh, which you describe very well, as really about uh, continuing ongoing conversation. And when I read a Buddhist text, I don't read it as um, you know a philologist would read it. I'm not interested in primarily in you know what is this text saying and in what context was it written and all those things. Those are I'm not. I don't want to dismiss that because I think it's very important. But that's not my primary relationship to a classical text. My primary relationship to a classical Buddhist text is, does it speak to my condition? Which um, I feel has been the purpose of classical Buddhist literature from the very beginning. Uh, if you look at how Buddhism went into, let's say, a country like Tibet or Japan, um, 
there's a vast body of materials that are translated into those languages, but only a tiny percentage of them that actually then get taken up and developed into what we now call Tibetan Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism or whatever it might be. And so I find I, I see what we're doing in the West here as really no different at all to what happened when Buddhism went from India to China or India to Tibet, you know, more than a thousand years ago. Uh, now, in each case, you find uh, a situation where you have a body of new ideas, Buddhism, encountering a culture with certain needs and certain uh, desires, a certain confusions, perhaps, that it seeks to resolve. And so the engagement with the Buddhist tradition um, is very much about uh, listening to these ideas, studying these texts, uh, and seeking more, more or less intuitively, uh, where does how does this text speak to, to my condition? And I think as one proceeds over the years and over the decades in pursuing this line of inquiry, uh, you, you, you sharpen or you heighten, let's say, a, a certain kind of quality of attention, a certain sort of uh, inner compass, as it were, that tends to direct you to voices that seem to be speaking in a similar way. And um, this has been what you call my dual approach. On the one hand, I find the Buddhist texts that speak to me most directly come from the earliest strata we can establish within the Pali tradition. And we also know that that's available in Chinese translation as well. And on the other hand, in terms of my own Western tradition, I found uh, that it was the existentialist phenomenological uh, movement in philosophy in the 20th century in Europe that initially sort of sparked my interest in philosophy, uh, and particularly how those philosophies then influenced uh, Christian theology and Jewish theology. I'm also very keen on people like Martin Buber, um, Emmanuel Levinas also. Uh, and so I find that those readings um, starting perhaps with, with, with Paul Tillich uh, and, and Heidegger and so on, uh, also were texts that I was drawn to because they spoke to my own condition. And it's through the marriage of those two streams that I feel my work um, is somehow evolving. Uh, at the moment, actually, and since uh, COVID, I've been particularly uh, drawn into Plato, and I've spent much of the last year uh, studying Plato and the Greek playwrights. I'm very interested in trying to find a way of um, understanding uh, Gautama, the Buddha, and Socrates, the Greek philosopher, uh, as somehow kindred spirits, uh, both of which, both of whom were utterly crucial and central to the formation of what we broadly think of as Western civilization or Western culture in the case of Socrates, and what we broadly think of as Buddhist civilization or culture, uh, which, of course, we understand as originating with uh, Gautama. Um, and that's where my research is going now. I'm going back to the more ancient philosophies, um, not only Socrates, Plato, but also the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Skeptics, and so forth. And that's currently where my, uh, my, my uh, interest lies. But in, but irrespective of that, the point is that I see my work as a conversation. I see it as a conversation between the text and myself. I see it as a conversation between what I write and 
my readers. I see it as a conversation between my own inner uh, spiritual concerns and that of uh, the textual traditions within Buddhism, uh, not exclusively Pali Buddhism. I'm also still very drawn to uh, the Zen tradition, uh, which I think is a very good precursor historically of the kind of reform movements that we're finding now, for example, in secular Buddhism. Uh, but I also find that this conversation is a conversation that connects me to uh, figures within my own tradition, uh, be they philosophers, be they Christian theologians, or be they uh, figures in our in our Christian in our Western past, like Michel de Montaigne, for example? I've done quite a lot of work on him. Um, so it's all these strands together are what motivate and somehow drive my work uh, onward, and it's that that I trust more than anything else. Now I I I, I trust that I'm kind of in tune with a certain flow of ideas and practices that seems to be. It seems to have, it, it animates me, let's say, and I trust it. I trust that I can follow this. I don't always know where it will take me. And I I love the journey into the unknown. I love being surprised and astonished by learning things I hadn't expected to know. Uh, and uh, the extent to which I can share that um, is really, you know, all I can, I think, offer uh, to others. And um that's kind of you know that's kind of what I'm doing. I don't have any particular ambitions. I'm I I, I haven't I haven't formed any organisations or I'm not trying to recruit students. Uh, <laughs> I just do my thing, and uh, yeah. how how people respond to it positively or negatively uh, is not the primary concern uh, in terms of my own evaluation of my work. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot in there as well. And I, I like the fact that you've reaffirmed that, you know, you're just one man and a, a man that's doing his thing and sharing that and taking it as a conversation makes it very much at the human level rather than the institutional level, which I think is where some of the critique of you perhaps is, is lost or is a slight waste of time. <laughs> yeah, I have a deep respect for let's call it the calling, which I think is one of those phrases that uh, Ken McLeod, who I know you're friends with, he would tend to define it as. And some of the figures you've mentioned are interesting, aren't they? I mean, De Montaigne is, is somebody who I've read a book about quite recently, and he's a fascinating chap. And I think that sort of, um, that earthy day-to-day -day humanity that he expresses in, in taking on his own curiosity and his own questions is something that to some degree does appear timeless and I, I might come back to that as a question too but I want I want to say something a little about bit about your book on after Buddhism because two things came up while you were speaking one is that we are in a sense spoiled today uh, in the 21st century not just because of the internet but because of just how much is available to us there's so much choice so as you've done you've taken a direction which interests you i might take a slightly different direction but before you started going let's say backwards towards plato and socrates you did engage with jani vatumo and you did so to the degree that you decided to name your book after buddhism which if i'm not mistaken is inspired by his own work after christianity when i picked up the book i thought okay maybe maybe uh, stevens leaving behind some buddhism now let's find out what he's up to next and uh, of course it wasn't that so my question is this, to what degree did um, Vatimo's work inspire you? And to what degree does it resonate 
with his work to the degree that you gave it the name that you did? Well, first of all, I didn't, strictly speaking, name the book after Buddhism uh, purely in reference to Jani Vatimo's uh, work. Um, another theologian that I am very influenced by, far more influenced by than Jani Vatimo, who I don't have a great uh, knowledge of his work, is Don Cupid, the Anglican theologian. And he published a book called After God, uh, before Vatimo's book came out, which I had read. So I see the, um, and there's a whole slew of titles with the after, the right. called after atheism. It's a, I found it's a very, it's a very uh, effective way of looking at a tradition and yet suggesting that we're looking at it in terms of where it might lead rather than what it has been. And I found a great affirmation when I read uh, Gianni Vatimo's book, After Christianity. Uh, I also read uh, a book of his called uh, Letting Go of Truth. I think it was mm -hmm. Letting Go of Truth or Farewell to Truth, Farewell to Truth, which was probably more influential on After Buddhism than the book entitled After Christianity. Um, again, Jack, uh, Vatimo, um, I can't claim at all to really have a deep understanding of Vatimo's work. And, I, and to be honest, I found some of his text fairly difficult to make much sense of. I don't have the kind of knowledge that he has of the Western tradition to really understand clearly what he's doing. But in many ways, I was more inspired by his life and uh, I read, um, he wrote an autobiography, which I think was written by someone else, one of his partners, I think. I forget what it was called. That I found a marvelous book. I just can't remember the title. But um, what I what inspired me about Vatimo is somebody who's actually taken a very, a, a very conscious stance against religion earlier in his life and has advocated things uh, like, uh, you know, homosexuality, and so forth and so on, uh, in a very, very vociferous, and I think in a very compassionate way. And he's then come back to the church. Uh, I find that quite uh, intriguing. Um, and he's also, of course, been active as a politician. He's a member of the European Parliament. I don't know whether he still is, but he was. Um, and he's a public intellectual. He's a figure who engages with not just the world of philosophy, but far broader than that. Uh, he's a well-known public intellectual in, it, in Italy. Uh, and it's that combination of things, the philosophy, which again is based, again, largely in the phenomenological tradition, um, the grappling with ideas that we normally think of as spiritual or religious ideas, uh, his own sort of uh, struggle with his relationship to the church, his engagement with uh, the political life of Italy and, and Europe. All of these things together speak to me very powerfully. And I found that as an example of what a human being can be, I thought of Vatimo as someone, you know, I could instinctively uh, hold in great uh, admiration. Okay. You've mentioned phenomenology a couple of times, and obviously Heidegger was a key figure in that tradition. Another person who's quite difficult to read. Yes. <laughs> That's probably an understatement, but <laughs> there it is. We pick up these influences, obviously, and I like to think of them as almost companions, right? We either walk with them or they could be kind of objects that we carry with us for a while rather than just sort of, 
abstract theory or, or, or thinking. Um, do you still carry that companion with you or walk with that companion of phenomenology? Do you still visit the work of, I don't know, yeah, Heidegger or maybe Malou-Ponty? And if so, what is it that's still important for you from that? I don't revisit the world of phenomenology uh, very often, to be <laughs> honest today. Uh, I, I, about 30 or so years ago, when I started reading Heidegger, um, I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk still at that point, so I must have been okay. in my late 20s. And the book of mine that is most overtly influenced by phenomenology is called Alone with Others, mm-hmm. which was published in 1983. It's my first self-authored book. Um, and that was the period when I was most in, in, influenced by uh, these thinkers. Um, many of my friends, like uh, John Peacock, for example, uh, are still very passionately engaged with the work of uh, phenomenology as as a form of philosophy. Um, but no, I don't or very rarely go back and revisit these things. The The reason that phenomenology, I think, initially engages me is because it is concerned with uh, the world of what appears. <laughs> and it refuses to make the, uh, the, very, uh, the very common uh, split uh, between appearance and reality. Mm-hmm. It refuses to divide the world up into a part that we can't understand or we don't understand yet. And then we have the appearances of those things that we uh, that are accessible to us through our senses and so on. And that is, of course, what Heidegger would, would have considered to be the basic uh, Platonism that is buried in the structure of Western philosophical thought. The idea of some absolute truth, some ultimate truth, uh, you know, that's somehow accessible, but to access it, one needs to somehow work through the conventional appearances of everyday life. And what I like about the phenomenologists is they just suspend all of those um, assumptions, the assumption that there is a subject and an object, the assumption that there is an appearance and a reality, that there is a creator and a creation. It suspends all those binary uh, splits that are so implicit in, in not only, I think, in our philosophical tradition, but also, I think, in our every, in, in just our sort of common, common sense habits of mind, uh, tend to think of the world in that way. Um, and so, the phenomenologists, I think, uh, opened uh, a way uh, in the Western tradition uh, to seek to uh, arrive at an experience of what Husserl called uh, die Lebenswelt, the living world the living world. Uh, In other words, by suspending our concepts and our views and our habits of mind to encounter uh, the the living world. But what I never understood through the phenomenologists was was what kind of methodology they employed. It seemed to be largely a kind of intellectual exercise in which you consciously, self-consciously suspend certain ideas with the idea that that will bring you closer to the living experience of of, of the real world. And um, that I feel to be, I've always felt that to be a weakness of that system, whereas I think it marries very well with the Buddhist uh, approach to contemplation and meditation, which I think is doing something very similar. In other words, it's paying attention to what is rising and passing in the given moment. It's letting go of uh, fixed opinions and views and so forth and so on in order to 
know what it's like to breathe in a long breath or breathe out a short breath, as one of the earliest suttas has it. Uh, it is a practice that provides uh, the phenomenological philosophy with a kind of method, and a method that uh, in Buddhist traditions is enacted uh, each time one sits in formal meditation. The whole vipassana or mindfulness uh, current within that, and I think similarly the practice of a Zen uh, or Chan, uh, is very much about engaging and uncovering the living world of Husserl, but not through a kind of conceptual or intellectual approach, but through a felt embodied kind of praxis. And so that's why I find that phenomenology is particularly, um, in a sense, um, accessible and uh, of value uh, to this attempt to articulate what Buddhist practice is about, because I think it has a very similar goal. Yeah, there are two interesting things uh, that come up for me as a response to that. One is that phenomenology has been picked up again within certain forms of uh, the cognitive sciences as a basis for thinking about the work they're doing in studying things like meditation and so forth. So that there's that. That's, that's interesting. And one thing that's coming out of that is a more sophisticated model of consciousness and its relationship with the physical body, but also with uh, physical space and also with social space. And I, I think that's a kind of evolution in that field. Uh, one thing else that's also interesting is that, you know, there was a certain decline to phenomenology that came later as people found limits and some inherent problems with this idea of absolute suspension of the observer or interpretation and they started to take it further to understanding how you know we are also socially constructed right not just through our own personal narratives but through our relationship to ideological forms of a given age and the, the social conditions that we live in so there's a lot going on there and I think that's really interesting because some of the critique that comes at someone like yourself I think on a good day, picks up on some of those later themes and poses questions that may be, in a sense, looking to recognise what might be unconscious or assumed within certain ideas that come out of the world of secular Buddhism. And that's, that's where I think it's interesting. And maybe I can just mention a couple and we can just discuss them together now. And I'm, I'm sure you've thought about these, but one is that you may find yourself sort of falling back into a, the, the mistake of perennialism, where we, we assume things are timeless or eternally true or globally true when they may not be. Uh, there's certainly a trend in a lot of the intellectual spaces today to see absolutely everything is socially constructed or located within specific contexts. So you need to understand it there. And I think there are interesting aspects to that, but also limitations. Uh, I'd say the two kind of work together. That's one thing. Another one is that there's been a sort of analysis of, of your project as being almost like um, a, a Buddhist reproduction of the kind of Protestant wave after the Reformation that took place mm -hmm. in Christianity. And so what some people have done is they've said, well, okay, so what were some of the processes that took place? Is Stephen Batchelor mirroring them? And what are some of the problems inherent in those? I'm not going to come to you with those as a critique per se, but I think it's quite interesting just to think about it. So what about perennialism? Let's start off with that one. Then we'll talk a little bit about some of the characteristic of the Protestant mm. Reformation and see if they apply and what you think about them. But what about perennialism? Do you think there might be some truth to that? Do you think you might fall into that idea sometimes? And do you think there's a risk that 
we may, you know, all of us, not just you, but uh, confuse maybe our personal interior experience with a kind of universal or global or even global in, in, in terms of within our species and confuse the two? Do you, do you think that might be the case? I've never really thought about this, to be honest. I, I've always understood perennialism as something that I think people like Aldous Huxley wrote about, the perennial philosophy, the idea that there are, within all the world's religious and spiritual traditions, common cores, common core values that somehow unite them all. And I've never had much sympathy for that. Uh, 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 and the main reason, at least before, uh, you know, many decades ago, was that Buddhism never seemed to fit. Buddhism was a bad fit to all the other religions that Huxley was happy, could happily sort of find common threads to. It's not so easy with Buddhism. Buddhism is a bit of a sore thumb amongst the other world religions mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't have a God figure and uh, it doesn't uh, speak in that kind of voice uh, at all. So it kind of has to get forced into uh you know, a compartment that will, in, and a definition that will enable it to sit more easily with the other uh, approaches of the different religions. But the way in which you were speaking about perennialism was more in terms of how I might be mistaking what seems to be self-evidently true in my own personal experience, and then projecting that into a much making wider universal claim. Exactly. Yeah, I've never really thought about this. Um, I suppose that's a danger, and I suspect that's probably uh, something that anybody who is uh, engaged with, uh, you know, these sort of these ultimate questions, if you like, these deep questions of what existence is all about. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, we want to acknowledge that this is not just a purely subjective take. Um, on the other hand, um, I'm not comfortable with assuming that everything that I experience subjectively is simply that, that there is no greater uh, relevance or resonance or shared uh, understanding that we might find in, um, in an audience. And I find that when I'm, as a writer, um, what I experience is that, yes, I write in the privacy of my own office, uh, often without checking these ideas out with anybody else. It's a very solitary endeavor. It is quite definitely uh, deeply subjective. And I then publish uh, books. And the fact that people want, want to publish these books, uh, publishers, etc., um, plus the fact that my books resonate clearly with my public, with my audience, uh, suggests to me very much that I'm not just uh, speaking in an echo chamber just to me, but I'm actually engaging, and going back to our term we've already used, a conversation. And I'm interested in that conversation, not just because it means that my ideas are resonating with somebody else, but because it's through that conversation that my own thinking is carried forward. In other words, through listening to the responses I get, whether it's people writing to me, whether it's when I'm leading a retreat or I'm teaching in some way, um, I'm very much uh, taken off in new directions by what 
um, feedback I receive. So um, in that regard, uh, I don't quite see what the critique of perennialism uh, is trying to sort of get at. Uh, it's either a sort of banal observation uh, that uh, anything that is deeply important to you, we, you know, clearly one cannot assume it'll be deeply important for everybody else. But on the other hand, um, it's only through uh, uh, teasing these ideas out and sharing them and debating them and discussing them that one begins to recognize that uh, they do have a relevance uh, outside of one's own subjective experience. Mm -hmm. Can we move on to Protestantism? <laughs> yes, of course we can. Yeah, good. Uh, uh, there, uh, here I'm on much firmer ground because uh, this is something I've thought about a great deal. Okay. So look, one phrase that I think jumps out at me um, in, in what I've read and thought about myself is this idea of the rhetoric of decadence. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's this idea that a religion starts out, it has its birthing moment, and in that moment it's kind of pure and, and authentic and original, and then it decays over time, and what comes afterwards is almost inherently problematic to some degree. And that's this kind of idea that gives birth to some degree to the Protestant movement, right? Then they'll talk about more rational approach to ethics and so on. Do you think that's in the background and the way you think about your greater attraction to earlier forms of Buddhism? Yeah, I do. Mm. Um, the, uh, in fact, I've, I think to me, the Protestant Reformation is a, is a key moment. In, uh, in the history of Western religi religiosity, spirituality, philosophy, even, um, and it's one—it's a—it's the kind of moment that has not really occurred in Buddhism. Uh, there are a few examples. Zen would be one example in China. Uh, the work of Nichiren, uh, Shinran, and others in Japan. So there have been Protestant-like moments in the histories of Buddhism, but never on a broader scale that's affected the whole tradition. Um, the, uh, uh, I do find that, if, if, if I'm perfectly honest, I find that the earliest uh, texts, and again, we have to be careful here because that doesn't mean just everything you'll find in the Pali Canon. You need to exercise a critical judgment as to uh, which texts in the Pali Canon are more likely to be of an earlier date and which uh, subsequent. That is, again, a whole field of study uh, that uh, is currently being undertaken. So I'm not just uncritically taking the Pali Canon on board, but I'm actually quite selective in my choice of uh, texts. And I am looking for uh, a kind of uh, a, a foundational body of doctrines, a foundational body of discourses, let's say, uh, upon which we might be able to start all over again. Um, I do feel that Buddhism, uh, well, what we call Buddhism, emerged out of the teachings of a man called Gautama, uh, which were not, they did not achieve finality in terms of their organization until, let's say, two or three hundred years after his death, maybe longer, a uh, long oral tradition and, you know, all kinds of uh, interferences uh, and uh, modifications that no doubt took place during that period. But I do feel that there is sufficient uh, uh, material within some of these earlier texts to point to the fact that what we think of as Buddhism may not have started out like that at all. Um, and much in the same way, 
that what we think of as what Luther might have been exposed to as Christianity, let's say the the, the theological systems of Thomas Aquinas, uh, have really not a great deal to do with the four Gospels. Um, What's curious about most Buddhist traditions is they don't even today study the early texts. Um, the Tibetan, the, particularly the Mahayana traditions, um, but even the Theravada traditions, uh, simply do not go back to the earlier, uh, the early di- di- discourses. Uh, in Tibetan, most of these early discourses weren't even translated, and yet, with good, in totally good faith, uh, teachers from China, Tibet, elsewhere, will say this is what the Buddha taught. And I found that problematic. And one of the great um, things that uh, uh, has always uh, inspired me is what can we learn about the historical Buddha? What can we know about the world in which he lived in the 5th century BC? How was his teaching inflected by the conditions of his time? To what extent was he responding to those conditions? Uh, And particularly, in what respect was he responding to those conditions in a language that you don't find in Hinduism or Jainism or any of the other religions of India that either pre-existed or were contemporary with him. So I do think you have a, you know, a, a fairly uh, r- robust way of engaging with uh, early, uh, what we now call early Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a Protestant, and, and, and again, I wasn't raised uh, in a, a Christian environment at all, apart from the fact that I grew up in a Christian culture, but I never went to church. I never received religious education. I was never Uh, confirmed or anything like that. Um, But what I do find um, is that uh, the Protestant tradition uh, is one that uh, sought to interrupt the continuity of a certain way of thinking about Christianity and to bring it back to the primary relationship of the individual human person with God uh, without and, and doing away with the intercessionary figure of the priest and um, and also all kinds of other superstitious things that had accreted in Roman Catholicism by Luther's time. And I find Luther's example, likewise Calvin, uh, Cal, Cal Alvin and Luther in particular, uh, I think um, set an example for me. Uh, and in that sense, I do see myself as following in their footsteps. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a consequence, I also see a lot of the kickback that I'm getting from both academics and Buddhists at the moment is a bit like a counter-reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another angle one might look at this. In fact, uh, someone else already pointed that out. Uh, the editor at Tricycle uh, suggested that perhaps uh, you know the, the book on secularizing Buddhism and elsewhere are basically a, a, a kind of counter-reformation, an attempt to re- to, in a sense, defend the status quo, maybe modifying it somewhat in light of some of these contemporary critiques, but actually seeking to hold on to the, uh, you know, the, the fundamental structural ideas of what I think of as Buddhist orthodoxy. And I think that's true in the academy as well as amongst the traditional Buddhists. What I'm arguing for is a different way of conceiving of the, uh, the fundamental logic uh, of the Dhamma. Um, and that fundamental logic in Aurea, in traditional Buddhism and in the way Buddhism is understood in the academy, 
is built into what are called the Four Noble Truths. Yeah. On a good day, uh, the critique of this connection with the Protestant Reformation is that it, it recognises that there are certain trends that emerge out of that that remain, in a sense, unquestioned by those who carry forth those traditions within Christianity, first of all. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Philippe, uh, I've forgotten his surname, but that, Ch- the guy... Turenne. There you go, thank you. Uh, you. You should know the pronunciation better than me, right? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I think his critique is actually the weakest critique in the book, um, and it perhaps does have a bit of a flavour of what you've just said. Again, at least for me, the more interesting critique comes from some of the other voices. But again, I don't think it should be taken as a kind of attack on Stephen Batchelor for the reasons I started off with today, because it's almost a caricature of Stephen Batchelor. I think it could be taken as actually an invitation to think about some of the consequences of what they're suggesting. And and I would suggest that's actually going in the opposite direction. It's kind of saying, to what degree are you aware of some of our current knowledge rooted in things like the fields of philosophy that's moved on uh, since phenomenology? And then I think at the same time, we have, we live in such complex times where there's so much going on. You know, there are people thinking, for example, about the consequences of post-secularism you know, which is not a return to something before, but it's a kind of social space in which we talk about how do things coexist rather than trying to get back to something or get to something over there. What, what's the kind of social space of relationship that takes place between them? And I was thinking about what you were then saying about your relationship with this idea of going back. People tend to be psychologically drawn to either, you know, being past orientated, present orientated or future orientated. And it seems to me that maybe um, some of your interests betray a kind of past orientation in your own passions and work, which I think is is fine, of course. I'm actually the opposite of that. And I think that I find your work interesting, but one of the, the points where I, I, I lose interest, and it's very personal, so I just want to make that explicit, is that I'm kind of looking in the opposite direction because I'm naturally future-orientated. Part of me just thinks, do we actually need to go back to this uh, this figure, right, which is almost intraceable, untraceable? Do we need to go back and sift through the Pali canon to try and find what's more or less authentic? It seems to me that we could take all that, whether it's authentic or not, as kind of creative material, which obviously you and everybody else, even traditional, so-called traditional forms of Buddhism, pick and choose from, right? Absolutely, of course they do. But I wonder to what degree it might be interesting to take that project and and look towards the future and and less towards almost authentic origins, because I think that to some degree that can be a dead end. I completely agree. Um, If one were to leave this search for origins uh, as little more than a kind of historical curiosity to try to establish what, you know, might have been there with some degree of possibility perhaps mm. at the time I, I am with the Buddha and to differentiate that from uh, other things that are probably later accretions. I mean, that would have a purely theoretical interest for me. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to find a ground on which I can stand as a follower of Gautama, not even necessarily as a Buddhist. I'm actually having difficulty even identifying, self-identifying as a Buddhist any longer. But I am looking for a ground um, uh, which is sufficiently uh, robust and sufficiently uh, fertile that can provide us with uh, a framework, an ethical framework primarily, in which to respond to 
the uh, uh, the future. Um, and I'm often criticized in my work for being, as you say, past oriented. From my point of view, I find that a puzzling critique. I can see that it's true at one level. By reading my books, for example, you could say, well, that seems to be all that he does. I see that as a weakness in my own work. But I also feel that without this kind of returning uh, to the deep past, and now I'm doing this with Plato and so on, I wonder whether we would have a sufficient uh, uh, groundedness to be able to then uh, imagine a, a Buddhist vision for the kind of world that we experience now, and the, particularly the sort of world that is going to unfold for future generations. Mm-hmm. And the most recent thing I've published, uh, which you haven't mentioned, is an essay called Embracing Extinction. Mm-hmm. It was published uh, in the summer issue of Tricycle Magazine not long ago. Uh, and that is the first time I have actually addressed issues that have to do with the future. But my sense is that Buddhism, as it currently stands, traditionally, is not is very poorly equipped to address some of those issues, particularly these, these global concerns about climate uh, survival and so forth and so on, because I think traditional Buddhism has uh, locked itself into essentially an ascetic monastic mindset uh, that it picked up clearly from the Indian ascetic tradition. And the whole lay side or secular side of Buddhism kind of was was lost in the process. Um, There's, again, an awful lot more one could say about that. But basically, I am concerned more and more in my work with how these ideas, how these insights into what might constitute the earliest roots of Buddhism, and likewise Platonism, and distinguishing Socrates from Plato. That's something I'm particularly interested Mm -hmm. in at the moment, uh, because I do think these these, uh, figure, these originary thinkers and figures who we keep referring back to, um, do somehow embody a particular level of insight in the evolution of human cultures and behaviors that Mm -hmm. I think we are still within their orbit, as it were. And at some point, we might move beyond that particular period of history, that particular period of time. But at the moment, I feel as though I'm still very much an inhabitant of it. And I seek, therefore, to um, engage with these ideas, not for their own sake, (coughs) certainly not out of some kind of historical interest, but exclusively, really, to be able to envisage a form of of, uh, of ethics, a form of philosophy, and a form of contemplative practice that can most effectively address the uh, issues, uh, the suffering uh, that our world uh, uh, calls out to be addressed now. Um, so that's where I'm heading. And the book I'm writing at the moment, the working t- title is Socrates, Buddha, and Us. And by us, I mean the human community that lives on planet Earth right now. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time I've really had the courage, perhaps, to engage in current affairs, as it were, and to develop a, uh, you know, a, a view, a philosophy, a, a practice that can 
engage with those current affairs, but one that is not, I think, hampered or hindered by the traditional Buddhist uh, world-renouncing uh, ethos. Okay, great. I found one of your previous comments interesting, and, and I'd just like to share a reflection that came to my mind as you were saying it. And then I've got a final, very practical, very practice-orientated question to end with. Mm -hmm. um, when you were talking about living culture beforehand, you were talk sorry, you were talking actually about a ground. Mm -hmm. I think the whole desire and search for a ground is a, a powerful drive within all of us. And I think within practitioners, it comes up time and time again. And it's an interesting one. I think there's, again, a tension there. It almost could be understood as one of the fundamental problems, right, that Buddhism is seeking to address. Mm -hmm. And I had this image come to my mind when you used the word fertile, which I like very much. You know, instead of it being a ground, it's actually, you know, it, it, there's a stream of, of living culture, this figure of Gautama. And Socrates are, are, of course, very much human figures situated within a long line of human culture and all of its struggles. And there is fertility there. I'd agree with that. And there's obviously fertility within a conversation that might take place with Socrates and Plato or Socrates through Plato. That's also interesting. But the question I think I always come back to, which again betrays where we started with today, which although I have a fascination with intellectual culture, especially contemporary intellectual culture, my question as a practitioner is how does that translate into, let's use some terms from our conversation today, the phenomenology of the practitioner as they sit with it, right, as a living experience. So maybe we can end with that. I mean, if you've been spending the pandemic dealing with, you know, an interest in Plato, obviously that translates not just into what you think about and what you reflect on, but it translates into your own subjective experience of being someone in the world. So is that something you could speak to? How has your engagement with Plato and this this line of inquiry you're, you're exploring impacted or been experienced at the experiential level within things like sitting practice or walking mm -hmm. meditation and, and that kind of thing? Well, that's very well articulated. Um, I, to, the, 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 the thesis of this work I'm writing at the moment is that what the Buddha and Socrates have in common is that they were both primarily committed to ethics, how to lead a good life, and at the same time, they were committed to uncertainty. They were committed to a view of the world, as the Buddha put it, um, in which one neither, in which one is, ceases to be caught up in the binary between is and isn't, or being and non-being, um, and to let go of the need for some kind of certainty that something either is or something either isn't. I know that sounds very abstract, but if you convert that into a more human experience, it's basically about learning to live and remain within a constant state of questioning. If you suspend yet being a non-being, you're basically suspending the idea of yes and no, affirmation and denial. And instead, you rest in this middle way. And for the Buddha, for Nagarjuna, the middle way is this capacity to follow this uh, way of life that is not uh, constantly slipping into affirmation or denial, but is holding the current experience as a question. And that's central to my practice of Zen, for example, to simply ask the question, what is this? But at the same time, it's also uh, an, uh, 
a commitment to responding to life in a way that optimizes uh, the good, uh, that seeks to make the world a better place, that seeks to, for you as a practitioner, to evolve into someone who's more wise, more loving, more kind, more tolerant, more patient, more intelligent, perhaps. And so I call this an ethics of uncertainty. And I will argue, I am arguing, that both Socrates and, and Gautama were effectively practitioners of an ethics of uncertainty, whether you think of it in terms of the Socratic aporia, you know, the suspension of, of certainty, so many of Socrates' dialogues ending with the question still hanging, as opposed to Plato coming along and giving you the answer. And likewise, I think the earliest discourses of Gautama are again about leaving you suspended in an aporia between being and not being, knowing and not knowing, and thereby freeing yourself from what I feel is actually what holds us back. Uh, and uh, well, what holds us back from a response, a considered, thoughtful, compassionate response to experience uh, and to other people and to life itself, as opposed to a reactive relationship to life in which we just repeat the opinions and the views uh, of uh, those who have influenced and informed us. So the spirit of, uh, of, of intellectual and ethical freedom, I think, is central to what Gautama taught. I think it's central to the example of Socrates uh, and his teaching. Um, and it is central to my experience as a practitioner of the Dharma today. So I find very much that uh, in uh, studying both these traditions, I find that they inform and uh, refine and strengthen the core of my own existential practice uh, of what it means to be fully human, which I exercise both in my daily meditations, uh, in my teaching, in my writing, uh, also in my artwork. Uh, again, that's something that perhaps is not so clear in my writing, but parallel to all of my writing, I make collage, I take photographs. I'm highly uh, interested in the non-verbal representations of this approach as well as the verbal ones. And to that degree, um, I've only found my readings of of Plato, uh, uh, you know, a deep both confirmation and uh, affirmation uh, of this uh, path that I'm struggling to carve out, which I'm now thinking of more as secular Dharma rather than secular Buddhism. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going at the moment. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned the name you've given to this, which was uh, an ethics of uncertainty. Yeah, I've actually just written a piece for for our blog on doubt and epistemic humility, so I can relate. Mm. A fascinating area, especially I think because of the times we live in, with, with just the relationship that people tend to have with social media, the explosion of conspiracy theories regarding things like vaccines. I think renovation or reinvigoration of a tradition of skepticism or doubt or an acceptance of uncertainty in the limits of knowledge in an age in which we're utterly saturated with information, which of course people then uh, confuse with knowledge or understanding, is kind of vital. So uh, the more of that, the better, and uh, good luck with your work. Um, it's, been, it's been good to talk to you, and I appreciate once again you giving up your time. And 
you've mentioned this project you're working on. So maybe when that's in its further stages, we, we might have another conversation. In the meantime, thank you. And I wish you all the best for your future. You've been on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It's uh, been wonderful to be on the Im- Imperfect mm-hmm. <laughs> podcast. And yeah, I would be very happy to continue this conversation at some point further down the road. That would be great. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools. Well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent, or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship, and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.